Amen. You may not be alive if your toe wasn't tapping on that one. All right. Man, I told Jessica, I said after the last verse, I wish I had the power to point at people and make them sing. It's like, go. Doesn't work for me that way. Hey, we are, you guys took a cue. You already sat down. You're good. I didn't have to tell you. That's awesome. If you got your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. As you are opening, let me say again, that we're so glad that you're here to worship with us on Easter. And let me just be really plain. Uh, if you are new to church, if you are new to this endeavor called figuring out what it looks like to follow Christ, or if you've been here a long time, let's just be really plain about what we're about here today. We have come to declare that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. On Friday, we gathered and we mourned his death and we pondered what it meant that he died for our sins. But today we come beyond the grave on the other side of it to declare that he is alive and that everything has changed because of it and that we will never be the same and nothing in this world will ever be the same because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Somebody say amen to that. So we want you to know that. If that's new language to you, if you're examining that, figuring that out, we hope that today, here's been my prayer, is that today as we point to the resurrection and we look at the hope that is found in that resurrection, that you might begin to feel welling up inside of you something that is true and good and right and alive because it is aligned with all that God has designed this world to be when you understand what the resurrection is. And if church, if you have been here, if this is your 80th Easter and you've been at this thing for a long time and you find that maybe hope is beginning to wane at different points because Jesus is tarrying, he has yet to come back and you are longing and you are waiting that today you would be infused anew with a sense of hope that comes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our hope for you today. I know no other thing that can do it, so I want to make it as plain as possible for you what the resurrection means for us. Because if we begin to understand that, I believe we will begin to live lives filled with hope and meaning and significance. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, oh, how we want you to be our teacher, our instructor. We need not man's words. We need your words. We need you to teach us. Holy Spirit, we need you to apply your word to us, to meet us right where we are, in our hurt, in our happiness, in our joy, in our indifference, wherever we may be. We need you to meet us in that and we need you to then come and instruct us. And we want to say to you, Lord, that everything you have for us today, we want to receive. Because all that you have for us is for our good. That's what your word has told us. You work for our good. And so we pray that you would teach us not to resist you when you want to convict us. Teach us not to resist you when you want to encourage us. Help us to see you as you are today, our Lord Jesus, risen and ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. We want to gaze upon you because you are worthy of praise and adoration and affection. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been said, uh, the numbers are a little bit rough. You'll get that. But the point to be made is nonetheless, uh, I think, helpful. It's been said that a human being can live without food for 30 days, without water for three days, without oxygen for three minutes, but they can live without hope for only three seconds. Hope is a necessary good. It's something that we are crafted for, made for. Something inside us says we need hope. We need it to live like we need the air we breathe. And so I was reminded this week as I was looking at a story about that need for hope. It reminded me of that reality. It's a story that was written, published by a group called Bittersweet uh, it's Bittersweet Monthly. It's a monthly publication that tells stories. And in their own words, here's what Bittersweet exists to do. It says, we are a nonprofit organization dedicated to crafting a counter-narrative, one that refuses cynicism, defies apathy, and celebrates the right and good. 
They are storytellers committed to finding glimmers of a solution to some of the world's hardest problems by telling stories of serious, gritty hope in the middle of those difficult contexts. Now, I suppose you could say that the existence of an organization like Bittersweet speaks to the reality of our need for hope, right? I mean, why else would an organization form around the idea of telling stories of hope in difficult contexts if we didn't, in fact, as human beings, crave it, need it, thrive on it? And so I read this story this week that Bittersweet published, and I'll point you to them as a great resource because there's a variety of stories that they publish each month that are really worthwhile, worth a look. Story I read this week was about the gun violence problem in Chicago. You, you may know this, be aware of it, it's been in the news. It's at a 20 year high, the gun violence problem in Chicago. It is uh, predominantly located in a few neighborhoods, just a few neighborhoods in Chicago. Inglewood being at the top of that list or near the top of that list. It's an area in southwest Chicago. On the week that the publisher, the editor of Bittersweet went to, to do research to write this story, 26 people were the victims of gun violence within 20 hours. Now, if you do the math, that's one every 43 minutes. One person every 43 minutes, the victim of gun violence. So you could say that this is not a context where hope thrives, right? It's a context, in fact, that might be designed to crush hope or to destroy it, to, to make it difficult to feel and experience it. Well, enter into this context a group of women and men from the area that decided they wanted to do something a little different in Inglewood. And so they've created a club, which upon hearing the name of, I immediately wanted to be a part of. It is called Crusher's Club. Come on, who doesn't want to be a part of that, right? So Crusher's Club is a boxing club. A bunch of young men in the neighborhood got together and said, you know what we want to do? We want to do something different. We're going to create a boxing club in the basement of a local church. And in that place, the members of Crusher's Club are finding a unique voice in the community that they never knew that they had. They are finding a unique sense of discipline, a profound sense of belonging. They are finding a sense of purpose. Different members of the club have gone on to box professionally. Uh, they are moving on to college degrees and just in general exercising different patterns. These are young men in particular who have identified that they themselves would either be the perpetrators or the victims of gun violence in their neighborhood were it not for Crusher's Club. Now that is an organization that is trafficking in hope rather than in despair. Would you say amen to that? It's a good thing. As I read that story and these men testifying to, I don't know where I'd be if it weren't for Crusher's Club, but it would not be here. That they are beginning to feel a sense of immense hope. In fact, the title of the article was, One Organization is Crushing Hopelessness on the South Side of Chicago. I thought that was a good title. We're made for hope. We need it. We're, we're desperate for it. And friends, here's what I want to tell you. The Word of God has something to say to us about that hope that we so desperately need. And it wants to offer us a better version of hope than we perhaps have ever known before. And it's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. Let's just look at three verses there. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Peter just explodes forth in praise here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can't contain his excitement at wanting to bless the name of God and love him. And then he says, here's why I would bless the name of God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Well, clearly the idea of hope is at the center of that text, right? Yes? Peter begins to write and he starts with this declaration of praise. Blessed be God, he has rescued us. And then he says this, because of his rich mercy, because God is great great in mercy. And friends, I'd be remiss if I didn't start right there. If we didn't start right in that place of reminding us that all that we experience as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a result of the fact that God has a merciful disposition towards us. If no one's ever told you that before, can I be the first to tell you that God, when he looks at you, feels a merciful disposition towards you. Now, perhaps you might think that you're not in need of mercy, but my friends, if you think that, you are deceived. We are all in need of mercy. There's not a one of us who has not wandered down a path we should not have wandered down. There's not a one of us that hasn't spoken a word we shouldn't have spoken, thought a thought we shouldn't have thought. There is not a one of us that can stand before a holy and righteous God and declare, I'm not in need of your mercy. And so we should be overwhelmed with gladness that God's first word to us is that I am mercifully disposed towards you. Paul, another writer in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter two says it this way. We were far from God. We were in rebellion against him. We were walking in death, not in life. And then he has this great turn of phrase in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, where he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, caused us to be made alive again in Christ Jesus. That's one of the richest, sweetest truths in all of the New Testament. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So if you've ever wondered how preachers get up here and declare to you in spite of what you've done or where you've been and you think you don't know me and they say God loves you and you wonder how can you declare that? We can declare it because God has declared it. Because he has said I am merciful towards you because I love you. It begins there. It begins by believing. The hope that you and I need begins with believing that God is mercifully disposed towards us. Now, some of us have begun to believe that a while ago, perhaps. And if you remember, if you remember what it was like when you began to believe that, you remember how overwhelmed you were the first time somebody told you that? You remember how overwhelmed you were when you caught a glimpse of the holiness and perfection of God and then someone declared to you that same perfect entity, that perfect being looks at you with great care and love. And the evidence of it is that he sacrificed his son so that you might be reconciled to him. I don't know if you remember how overwhelming that was. One of the things that happens when you choose to follow Jesus is that in those first days, you start to get filled up with feelings that you had no, you don't know where they're coming from and you're not sure you can explain them. And then as time goes by, if you're, and some of you might just be happy, some of us might just be like, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of hope. I'm overwhelmed with this feeling of purpose, this feeling of joy, and I'm just so grateful for it. Some of you might be like me and you begin to want to investigate, well, where is that coming from? Like, why is it that I feel this? It's overwhelming, it's broad, it's big, it's grand, and I don't know where, I don't understand how this is happening to me. And so you begin to sort of want to peel back the layers of understanding, well, where, where is this hope coming from? And why do I feel, why am I having this experience? So you begin to investigate the scriptures. You begin to look into them and ask the question, okay, what is it? What is it about this gospel that I've believed that is able to produce in me this inward disposition, this feeling, this conviction that I'm loved, that God is mercifully disposed towards me? What is able to do that? Well, we're gonna investigate that a little bit further today. Now, here's the argument of 1 Peter. 
chapter one, verses three through five. I mean, the, the kind of the big idea, right, is this. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus is able to produce a better type of hope than anything else can, right? It's qualitatively better. Did you catch that word? It's a, it's a participle. I know you're excited to know that part of speech today. It's a participle right in front of that word hope. It's the word living. He says it's a living hope. Now you might ask the question, well, why? I mean, hope is a good thing in and of itself. Why do you need to put that word on the front of it? Why would you take the time to say it's a living hope? Well, because what's implied in that is there's such a thing as hope that is not living. There is hope that lasts for a season but is not truly alive. In other words, there is a type of hope, a living hope, that is produced by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is qualitatively better than any other type of hope that you can experience and have. And it's the type of hope he wants you to have. Now, just to give a picture to this in your mind's eye. I've got a friend who lives in California and he's a wine connoisseur. He loves to collect wine. I mean, he is, that's his thing. So when you get out to his house and you spend time, he's gonna break out the different vintages of wine and he's gonna begin to explain to you uh, why the 82 is better than the 83. You know, and he's gonna, well, you know, and he's gonna be saying the acidity of this and, and there was a drought and therefore the ground had a little more acid in it and it grew these type of grapes and then when they crushed them and turned them, it, and he's gonna be really excited about it. And I'm gonna stand there blankly because I think all red wine tastes like feet. <laughs> it's weird, I know. Some of you are, are red wine people and you're like, what? And I'm like, it, I've never tasted feet, by the way. <laughs> but to me, that's, I'm pretty sure that's what they taste like. When I taste it, so it's completely lost on me. But he's like, no, no, the, this vintage versus that vintage. He, is, he wants you to understand that there, is, that there is a vintage of wine that is superior to this other vintage. And this is basically swill. He doesn't want you tasting it, right? In the same way, what God is saying to us in his word here is that there is a vintage of hope that is far superior to all other vintages. He wants you to taste it. He wants you to savor it. He wants you to relish it. He wants you to move it around in the glass. He wants you to smell it. He wants you to take it in. He wants to make you a sommelier. Is that the right word? A sommelier in hope. He wants you to be an expert in it. It's qualitatively better. Best vintage that's ever been grown of hope. Now, so let's examine this. Now, the first thing that we probably need to ask is when we say, okay, I, I get this idea that hope is intuitive or that it's, you know, I sort of intuitively get that hope is necessary for a human person. But one of the things we might recognize is that we don't have a great idea of what hope is. Like, what do we actually mean when we say hope? It's notoriously difficult to get our, to get our hands around. In fact, I did some studying this week and one of the things I was reading about is how sociologists and psychologists try to study hope and where it comes from, but they have a really hard time defining what it actually is. So everybody's got kind of this idea of hope. And here's the thing is, when you feel hope, you know you feel it, right? Sort of in your heart, you're like, oh, I feel hopeful. You could even identify that. But if you had to define it, you might have a difficult time actually understanding, well, what is it? And if you have trouble understanding what it is, then you might have trouble understanding where it comes from. So let me offer this definition of hope for you, just so we kind of all operating on the same terminology here, okay? I would say hope is a feeling of confidence. That term feeling is key, by the way. Don't be afraid of it. Hope is a feeling. Hope is a feeling of confidence regarding a preferred future that's based on a present reality. Let me repeat that. 
It's a feeling of confidence about a preferred future based on a present reality. So in other words, there's two parts to this idea of hope. There's both something that we look to, something we hope for, that we want to come to pass, a preferred future, but there's also something that hope is based upon. There's some reason we feel and experience that hope, something in the now that causes us to go, aha, I have a reason to believe that that thing I'm looking towards in the future could actually come to pass. So for instance, just as an example, all the studies that are done on patients uh, who are dealing with significant illness and getting better, all the evidence points to the fact that those who have a strong experience of this feeling of hope tend to recover uh, more effectively than those who lack it. So they're, they're needing, hospitals are needing to trade in hope to figure out how to bring hope into people's lives. So in that scenario, in that understanding, the preferred future, the thing hoped for out there is non-illness, right? It's wellness. It's to get better from whatever sickness I'm experiencing. Now, what that's based upon then, the, the reality, present reality that is based upon, is different depending on the person. Some, it might be confidence in modern medicine. It might be a, a decently positive prognosis. Others, it might be that they're surrounded by friends and loved ones and family who have been through this before and, and just kind of say, you're not alone. And others have made it through. You'll make it through. Some, it might be a belief in a sovereign and good God who's able to heal, right? And so there's any number of things that that hope is based upon. But the point is that there's those two elements to hope always when you think about what really is hope. It's a sense of confidence about a preferred future based on a present reality. Now, if that's the case, if that's what hope is, and the resurrection of Jesus offers us a, the best vintage of hope that you could possibly want to have, then let's examine a little bit where we sort of falsely place our hope. What are the lesser vintages? What are some of the things that we pin our hope on that really ultimately they, they don't work? They're an insufficient vintage of hope. And then we'll transfer to talking about why Jesus' is, resurrection is a, is a superior vintage of hope. All right, so... Here's what I would say. There's, there's a thousand places where people, where we are often tempted to place our hope, our sense of confidence about a preferred future. And I would offer a couple. They may not be the most common, but I would offer that they're up high on the list and we'll take these three. Money, significant others, romantic relationships, or kids. I think those are three pretty prominent spots where we're tempted to place our hope for the future. Uh, and we generate a sense, a feeling of confidence about a better future. But ultimately, those are insufficient. I'll give you a couple reasons why, because they have a couple of things in common that make them not real great bases for hope. The first is this, is that they are uh, not unchanging facts, right? When you think about money, when you think about relationships, particularly romantic relationships, when you think about kids, those are inherently changing things. They, they never stay the same. And that's not a bad thing, actually. You want kids to change and grow, right? You want relationships to change and grow. But inevitably, you know, the stock market turns down, money goes away, right? You've been in a relationship before that didn't last. You were in it. You thought, okay, this is it. This is the one. And then, and then it wasn't, you know? They were until they weren't, right? And you've experienced the crushing sense of loss that comes with having your hopes dashed when they were placed in that reality. So one of the reasons those things just don't make a great source of hope in the grand scheme of things is because ultimately they change. It's as simple as that. They change. Now, the second reason that things, I think, don't, those things, money, significant others, and kids don't make a great source of hope is not only do they change, they also, particularly in the, well, in the case of kids and significant others, they also may have a different vision of what a preferred future looks like than we do, right? 
So take significant others and kids. They may have, let's just take kids for example. If you've had kids, you know this, right? You might have a vision of the future as you base your hope on your kids that looks like them living a couple doors down and raising the grandkids there and getting to see them all the time and just having a grand old time of it. I mean, that would be a great preferred future. At the same time, your kid may have a vision of a preferred future that involves living on the other side of the world. A more nomadic lifestyle, right? Something that's a little different. I mean, shoot, it could be, honestly, friends, it could be as small a difference as, you know, you have a vision as a grandparent that involves never changing a grandkid's diaper and your kids have a very different reality in mind. <laughs> right? I was talking with my kids. This is not long ago. We're putting the kids to bed and it's always that really honest hour, which is the, just awesome stuff comes out in that hour. I don't know if it's stalling for going to sleep or what it is, but some of the best conversations happen in those moments right before the head hits the pillow. And it came out of nowhere. My daughter, Kinley, just said, you know, mom and dad, I think when I grow up, I want to live in, I hope the Campbells sell their house and I can live there. Well, the Campbells live about three doors down from us. So I thought, well, that sounds great. Absolutely, hon. You know, and she's like, that's where I want to live. And without missing a beat, our middle kid, Emerson, immediately from like the bottom bunk goes, I'm going to live on the other side of the world. <laughs> and I felt my heart break in a thousand pieces. You know, we have no idea where the Lord will lead our kids. And wherever he leads them, we will be their biggest cheerleaders. We will be behind them. If it's three doors down or three nations away, we want them to walk with Jesus. But, you know, the interesting thing is in just, in just hearing that, it reminded me, right? I can't place my hope in my kids. Kids leave. They go away. They launch, right? And some of you are thinking, please. <laughs> right? Please. Place your hope in your kids. It's just unstable. It doesn't work, right? Okay. If those are at least a couple reasons why those things don't make sufficient vintages of hope, sources of hope, bases of hope, then let's identify why the resurrection of Jesus is a better foundation. Let's identify, friends, better than that, not just why, let's identify how. How is it that the resurrection of Jesus is able to produce this hope that Peter calls a living hope? It's alive inside of us. It's palpable. It's something you can feel and experience and know it's as real as real gets. And it can live inside of you when you place your faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how does that happen? Well, number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality. That's the first reason it makes a better vintage of hope. It's a historical reality. Now think about those other things that we said. They change, right? Money changes. It comes and it goes. Relationships change. They come and they go. That's because they're, they're inherently unstable. That's just what they are. Because the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event, it's something that occurred in the past and it can never be undone, right? The simplest way to say this is Jesus is raised from the dead. He can never be unraised, right? We can't put him back in the grave. He is alive today, sitting at the right hand of the Father. You wonder why as a church we make a big deal out of the fact that Jesus is alive? It's because when we say Jesus is alive, what we're saying is he's alive and in control and reigning over everything that happens in my life and I don't have to be afraid anymore. That's why it's a big deal that Jesus is alive, that the grave couldn't conquer him, death couldn't hold him. We just sang like four songs about that reality because it's so precious to us and it's so central to all that we are. He is alive and he will never not be alive. Excuse the double negative there. It's a historical reality. Now, friends, some of you, 
you might not be convinced of the historical reality of Jesus. And I'm not gonna take the time today to go into all the evidence in favor of the resurrection. But let me just encourage you, because you might be thinking, okay, you know, okay, pastor, um, as you're saying that, you're assuming that it's a historical reality, but I'm not convinced that it is, and it's more wishful thinking than a good basis of hope. And all I'll say is this, the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that, that millions of people throughout human history have worshiped him are probably worth a little further investigation into the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just invite you to consider consider all the evidence around that reality. And there's lots of good resources. We can point you to several of them if you'd like to, to do a little further reading. And then just ask the question, what makes the most sense? I can't prove to you that Jesus was raised from the dead, but what I can tell you is that when you look at all the history surrounding that subject matter, the best answer, the best conclusion, right, to come to, there are a handful that you could come to, and most of them make very little sense. The resurrection is the one that makes the most sense when you begin to see what actually took place in that time, in that frame, and what's happened generation after generation after generation as a result of that historical reality. So, first reason why Jesus' resurrection makes a great vintage of hope, a living hope, is that it's a historical reality which is unchanging. The second is this, is that it's a theological reality. It's not just a historical reality, it's a theological reality. Now you may think, well, what, is that, what does that mean? What I mean is this, is that, Historical events have an impact on us all the time, right? I mean, you might even think, well, what does something that happened 2,000 years ago have to do with me today at all? I would just argue, think about the fact that historical realities have an impact on us all the time. So, for instance, the Declaration of Independence was signed hundreds of years ago, and because it was signed, we live in the United States of America and not Great Britain, right? We would all agree that that historical moment has an impact on our lives today that we experience as a result of it. So historical events always, always have effects down through history, particularly large historical events. So that's in and of itself a reason to believe that this historical event would have an impact on us. But beyond that, okay, beyond that, there is a way in which the resurrection of Jesus affects us in a way that the signing of the Declaration of Independence never can because it goes beyond just a historical reality. It is a theological reality, which means that it is a spiritual reality. It's able to impact things that go beyond just the physical seen world and impact things in the unseen world. Now this, again, this may be intuitive, but you see, right, that if someone is raised from the dead, in particular, that person is the son of God and he's raised from the dead, that that resurrection has an ability to do something in a spiritual world and in a spiritual realm uh, that cannot be done by any other historical reality or historical event, right? So it has an impact both in the physical seen world, but also in the spiritual and in the unseen, which is why it's able to, by the way, to produce a feeling within us, right? If you've ever experienced this idea of someone saying, hey, I mean, how does this work, right? When you say to someone, I want you to you know, love me. Does that work? Usually not. You have had better luck than me if you've done that and it worked, right? When you say to someone, feel something, that's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work. So one of the questions we may ask is, okay, well, how, does, how is it that hope is a feeling how is it that the resurrection is able to produce a feeling in us? Because that's what it's claiming. It's able to produce a living hope, which is a feeling of confidence about a preferred future. Well, how does it do that? How does it create that feeling? It can do that because the resurrection, the resurrection has not just physical implications, but spiritual implications, right? It goes beneath the surface of the human and gets into the soul and it says, this is, this is, 
I am able to impart to you now and bring into you a feeling that you did not feel before when you begin to believe this. Now, friends, I know that might be a, that might be a stretch for some of you. It might be a stretch to say, okay, like this can do something inside. But really, ultimately, I mean, you probably need to know this in advance if you're exploring Christianity, right? You need to know that what we believe is that God is able to plant things in us and do things inside of us because Jesus is raised from the dead and therefore he can take his Holy Spirit and plant it in us. That's the promise we received is that God's spirit would live and dwell inside of everyone who was his follower, who came to him by faith. And because that's in us, we believe that his spirit living inside of us is able to do something in our soul to, to transform our manner of being and our way of thinking and even, and even our feelings. Which is why God can again and again in the scriptures command feelings from us. Did you know that he does that? Again and again, God commands us to, or the most obvious example is when he says, rejoice. Now sometimes when God says rejoice, he means that as an action, something I should do, rejoice. Okay, I will declare my praise. But often when he says it, he means it not just as an action that I should do, but also as a feeling that I should feel. You may wonder, well, is that even fair, God? How can you d- demand a feeling of me? And he says, because I've placed my spirit inside of you and I'm able to make you feel what it is that I desire you to feel. Now, you partner with me, you surrender to me, you give yourself to me, but what we're saying is there's an internal, spiritual, soul-level work that is able to take place in us when we pin our hope on the resurrection of Jesus. You with me, church? You follow? All right, awesome. Last one. Last reason it's a better vintage of hope is because the preferred future to which the resurrection gives us confidence is clear. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you noticed that in verse four, right after verse three, the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection, the living hope that comes from it, in verse four he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, what he's saying is, the basis of the hope is the resurrection. The future that it looks towards is what? The inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. He says in verse five, a salvation ready to be revealed to you at the last time. In other words, there is something beyond the grave that the resurrection is pointing us to. Now here's the beauty of this, right? Why it makes the hope, living hope uh, of the resurrection a better vintage of hope. Because one, often, here's what I find. We place our hope in a thousand different things, but we're really cloudy on what it is we're hoping that they will do for us. We just like hope in the money. Like, yes, that's gonna somehow produce a better future. But we don't have any clear idea what that really is gonna look like. It may just be security or safety or whatever. We hope in the relationship and we place our hope there. But we don't really have any idea of what we're actually hoping it will do for us in the future. Just kind of nebulously, this nebulous idea of a better life. And one of the reasons the resurrection is so much better is it doesn't leave this cloudy, nebulous idea of what this preferred future is that we get to hope in. He says, oh, you want me to tell you? It's an inheritance from God on the other side of the grave that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's a pretty good description. Is that something you would like to have? He is saying, look, and here's the even better part. All the things that you and I hope in, we typically hope in as something we say, okay, I'm hoping in this now so that I can hopefully have something, a preferred future 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, whenever it may be. But, we're, but none of us actually believe that that kid, that relationship, that money, that success in my job actually produces anything on the other side of the grave. 
We're just hoping for something on this side of the grave that's a preferred future. And this is what he's saying. Peter's saying, oh, by the way, you want to know why this is a hope that's able to be called living? It's a better vintage? It's because it produces something not just on this side of the grave, but on the other side of it. And by the way, that thing that it produces will never fade. It will never perish. It will never be able to be smudged, defiled. There's no, it literally is pristine and it's waiting for you. Wow. Now, when you begin to understand that the resurrection has purchased that for you on the other side of the grave, do you see how it begins to pour hope that is alive into your heart? Do you see it, church? That's how it does it. It's remarkable, but it happens again and again. Every day, people are coming to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, and their hearts are being filled with a living hope. Now, There's no doubt that hope is necessary for us to thrive. And I hope that I've given you at least some things to ponder when it comes to the resurrection and how it's able to produce a living hope in you. But friends, again, go back to what I said about the fact that this is a feeling, right? It's a feeling of confidence about a preferred future. So if that's the case, you have to ask, well, how do I acquire it? How do I acquire it? Now, I've said, if you're you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things that I would encourage you to do, let me just give you an exercise, right? Spend some time actually mentally walk yourself down this road, asking yourself, what if I did believe in the resurrection? Like, what if I began to give myself to this belief that Jesus is the Son of God, died for my sins, and he rose from the dead? What might that begin to look like in my life? I mean, just begin to imagine your life believing that reality and see what it does in your, see if something doesn't spark inside of you. I'm willing to bet that it will. I am willing to bet that if you will begin to imagine your life with the resurrection entrenched inside of you, that what you will find is that there is some kind of a hope that begins to, begins to flutter, begins to build. Now, those of you who, you know, this is your 80th Easter, you've walked with Jesus for a long time and perhaps life is difficult. We both know we all need to be reminded of the hope we have in the resurrection. That's by the way, that's why we talk about the resurrection not just on Easter, right? We talk about the resurrection every Sunday because it is, it is our hope. Everything is based on it. Everything is based on it. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus a long time and you find yourself in this season where you're wondering, I don't have, I don't feel this living hope inside of me, you need to do exactly what we've been doing here today. You need to ponder the resurrection and go back to it again and again. You need to read the accounts of the resurrection. You need to talk about the resurrection with your friends. You need to meditate upon the resurrection because as you do, what you will find is that living hope that is promised right here by Peter in 1 Peter will begin to grow in you. And where hope has begun, the fire of hope maybe has begun to just dwindle a little bit, it will fan the flame because the resurrection is the source of that hope. So go back to the source, focus on the source of it, Bend your mind around the resurrection and the miracle that it is. Marvel at it. And as you marvel at it, watch hope grow. This good and necessary thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. It is a living hope. And Lord, my prayer after each service to you has been, would you, by the power of your spirit, take your word now and apply it into our lives. We know that no person's words can make the impact that we need made in our lives, but Spirit of God, you are able to do it. And so we pray that you would. Thank you for your promise that your word would not return void, that your word would never be 
planted in us and produce nothing. So I pray today, Father, that as you've met us where we are, that we would hear your word. Maybe it's just a specific phrase, a specific moment, a specific song or lyric that we sang. Take that now and produce fruit in our lives to make us faithful to you, to cause us to love you, to draw us into yourself so we might find life in you and bring you great glory because you're worthy of it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's sing to close our time together.